I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And joining us this week, we have another thrilling guest. Oh my gosh. Jackson Bird pronouns he, him is a multidisciplinary creator who writes and performs original works on the stage, on the page, and online. Many of his works aim to demystify the trans experience, a selection of which can be found on his YouTube channel, Jack is Not a Bird, and his debut book, Sorted, Growing Up, Coming Out, and Finding My Place. Currently, Jackson can be found performing 30 plays in one hour, many Friday and Saturday nights in New York City with the experimental theater company, The New York Neo-Futurists. Welcome, Jackson. It is so nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here after we all hung out over the summer at camp. Uh, And yeah, I'm also very excited that you accepted the only pitch that I gave Coach about what I wanted (laughs) to talk about on this show. We were like, yeah, we really want to talk to Jack. Like, what's he into? (laughs) Coach was like, Twilight, end of list. (laughs) Here's how the conversation actually went. Marcel went, Oh, Twilight, I refuse to read the book. We are not (laughs) shaming our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Because the reason I refuse to read it is because it sucks and we're taking this out. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I think uh, that's uh, kind of the larger discussion we're here to have. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, you can't take it out. It's, it's It's the whole point of the conversation. Okay, but before we get into a in-depth conversation about the pros and cons of Twilight the novel, because we are... Dear listeners, talking about the novel, not the movies. (laughs) I want us to talk just a little bit about vampires. Because, Jackson, you mentioned in an email exchange that you actually hate vampires. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really don't like vampires. So, one, what did they ever do to you? I am not entirely sure why I dislike vampires, but I do know that I spent the entire Twilight series being like, she can't be turned into a vampire. I don't want her to be a vampire. And like any vampire media I've engaged with where the main character is like a human who wants to be a vampire, I'm like, no, that would be so bad for you. And I don't know why. I think I must just be so human. I have this like carnal evolution trait that's like, no, can't be a vampire. 
You're like, yes, better not to be dead. You're really reasonable. Yeah, I see, right? It's, a, it's yeah. a, an evolutionary trait, I think. I don't know, Jack. I feel like that makes you an extremely rare breed of human who is like, vampire? Nah. Yeah, all the rest of us. I mean, we haven't taken a poll. We don't know how many humans <laughs> are hot for vampires. <laughs> but that is kind of the point of the vampire trope, right? Is that they're like sexy to humans. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we don't need a poll. I feel like we can rely on the material evidence of countless, countless vampire franchises. <laughs> right. I will say, and this literally only occurred to me in the last hour as I was like thinking about this podcast, which is I think maybe a reason that I like Twilight is because in Twilight, Edward Cullen hates being a vampire. Mm, he really hates okay. being a vampire. And so maybe that's part of why I like it. So you only like self-hating vampires. Exactly. I, I want them to really hate themselves for what they are. <laughs> That's so terrible. Mm -hmm. So big fan of Angel from Buffy. You know, I, that does track. And yet he was very mid to me. <laughs> <laughs> but what vampires do you two like or particularly hate? Yeah, Marcel, what's your favorite vampire? I believe my first exposure to vampires was the Anne Rice novel and the adaptation of that novel, Interview with the Vampire. So like Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, which now when I say it out loud, it's so silly. Really funny. <laughs> Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise as Louis and the Vampire Lestat. They were so pretty in that movie. Jackson, I think we are maybe a decade older than you. Is that true? I, I think about so. Culturally, that seems true. Yeah. I am 33. Yeah, it's culturally, it feels right, right? Yeah, oh, yeah okay. That's, that's only six years. It's only six years, but we came of age nestled deep within the black lace draped bosom of Anne Rice. <laughs> and I think that really informed a lot of our vampire cultural understanding, you know, which was that they were um, sexy and deadly. That's the whole thing. Right. That's right. You were probably the right age to see Bram Stoker's Dracula in theaters. Actually, no. So... We simply do not have time for me to get into the details of my annual Sweet November Keanu Reeves movie festival. Um, but we did just watch Bram Stoker's Dracula. It came out in 1992, so we would have been like around yeah. seven or eight. Yeah, so a bit young for the like just sheer quantity of blood in that movie. Yeah, like multiple orgies. So many orgies in that movie. So many orgies. A year later, I would watch Jurassic Park in movie theaters. So obviously we weren't. Well, see, <laughs> Jurassic Park was the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater when I was three years old. Well, I guess you're coming back for the Jurassic Park episode. Yay! I'm so excited. <laughs> Jackson, I know you've never heard of our podcast before, so I'm just going to share this with you uh, just for you because nobody else needs this reminder. But our first segment is called Why This, Why Now? And it is dedicated to the materialist question, what are or were the historical, ideological, and dare I say material conditions for our object of study to become zeitgeisty? And I hope everyone's ready to go way back in time today because we are talking about <laughs> 2005. Oh my God. 2005 was like three years ago. What are you talking about? If it was only three to 10 years ago, that means that we should all remember it really well. So Jackson, what do you remember about 2005? <laughs> oh, what a great challenge because not Ooh. too much. Um, I, know, right? <laughs> I was a 15 year old in Texas. So like Ooh. the first thing that comes to mind when I think of 2005 is George Bush. Oh, yep. yeah, absolutely. You know what? He's not not going to come up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think being in Texas, like 15 was around the time I started sort of coming into my own like political ideas. But instead of that, like making me want to take action in society because I was in Texas, it just sort of made me like go internal and pay less attention to the news and stuff because I was scared of expressing my opinions that were different than others. Yeah, it seems pretty reasonable. You know. Yeah. yeah. What do you remember mm. about 2005? Uh, 2005, I was in second year university because I took two years off between high school and my undergraduate. Good for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was living in a rundown farmhouse in the country. I was working full time at a bookstore while also putting myself through school. 
My roommate Jesse and I were binge watching the entirety of Sex and the City on DVD. And uh, for sure as hell wasn't reading Twilight. Ooh. <laughs> Marcel? Hmm. I was also in university. Uh, I was and had been volunteering for the Sexual Assault Center at the McGill University Student Union. And it was like my whole life. Mm. And so I also did not read Twilight and was very much not interested in Twilight because if I remember correctly, it had a real reputation of being not good for women in a yeah. like... That organization was wonderful and continues to be wonderful. I'm really glad it exists, but it was not super nuanced when it came to things like popular culture. And I think that maybe that's okay for a sexual assault center to like not make a lot of space for nuance and to be a little bit, you know, toe a hard line. Yeah, yeah. toe a hard line about books that maybe represent a lack of consent in a romanticized <laughs> way. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So that's what I was up to. I was being so angry about men. I was being angry about rape culture in general. Yeah. So, so Jackson, were you, you were 15. Mm -hmm. Were you reading Twilight? Not at that point. I didn't read Twilight until the last book was coming out. And I think I had sort of heard about it. I kind of have this memory of like one girl a year younger than me who had the Twilight books on her bookshelf. And I was like, oh, she must be into like weird vampire romance. That's very strange. Uh, and that was kind of, I think, my only awareness as the earlier books were coming out. But by the fourth book, like, the movies were starting and it was a really big thing. And so I, I ended up reading them for two reasons. One was I was working at Barnes & Noble at the time. And so I was scheduled to work the midnight release of Breaking Dawn, the fourth and, like, final book of the main series of Twilight. Uh... And our events director was like, not a single one of you who is working this event has ever read a Twilight book. And will someone else please just read one of these books so you know what's going on? And so we were like, we were allowed to check out like the Twilight book for free from the store uh, to read the first one. And I did. And I like sped through it. I read all four of them like just that week in a, in a few days. I got really, really pretty much just into the books. Like I didn't get into it in any further way. But another reason I was interested in reading them beyond our events director just being like, please, dear God, someone else read this with me, <laughs> was um, for many years before that, I'd been listening to a, a Harry Potter fan podcast. So as like the Twilight movies were coming out, like as the phenomenon was really taking off, and that was around the same time the Harry Potter books were ending, these podcasters were like, well, maybe Twilight's the new thing. Why don't we start a Twilight podcast? And so I listened to that Twilight podcast for months to years before I ever read the books. And I didn't even plan on reading them. I just liked listening to their discussions about them. And you know what? We're going to get a little bit more into this, but I suspect that was a lot of people's entry point into Twilight, being pulled into the Twilight fandom via the Harry Potter fandom. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've located ourselves a little bit in 2005, I do want to just give us a little bit of context around what turned Twilight into an international sensation and, you know, the logical inheritor of the fandom of Harry Potter. So the first novel in the series, Twilight, was published in 2005 by Stephanie Meyer, who was a first-time novelist and a Mormon wife and mother, which is an aspect of her identity that has been discussed a lot, particularly in the context of critiquing the series' gender politics. So just like real brief summary, just in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know what happens in Twilight, it is uh, the story of an introverted and horrifically parentified 17-year-old girl, Bella Swan, who moves to Forks, Washington to live with her father after her mother remarries. And she decides to like remove herself from her mother's care because she's the adult in the relationship. And while in Forks, Bella meets and quickly becomes obsessed with Edward Cullen, a vampire, just thinly masquerading as a teenage boy in a high school, really not trying that hard. The success of Twilight absolutely outstripped her publisher's expectations. She got a $750,000 book deal for a trilogy, which is good, but is not the kind of advance you get on a three-book series if you think it's going to be this big. Um, so it's like they knew it was going to be good, but they didn't know it was going to be this kind of blockbuster. Okay. And the reason it got signed is because she was part of the explosive rise of contemporary YA publishing and, of course, part of the moral panics that accompanied 
that rise. <gasps> and do we know what else was really key to the rise of, of YA publishing in the 2000s? Can I take a, a little stabby stab? Take, take a, a little stab? stabby stab. Was it Harry Potter? No, it Harry Potter. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I no know way. Wow, like the biggest publishing phenomenon of all time. And people were like, ah, it seems that the youth like books. Hmm. Hmm. Really interesting. Okay. What if we give them more books to read? Oh. So Harry Potter had really reignited the flagging YA market in the late 90s and early 2000s and really demonstrated to publishers that there was an appetite for YA, not only among the traditional target demographic, but also much more widely among adult readers Mm -hmm. and like not among, you know, only teenage girls, like people of all genders and people of all ages were reading YA. So according to an article published in McSweeney's in 2011 called Young People Are Reading More Than You, Lauren Ross and Hannah Withers explain that reading among young adults surged between 2002 and 2008, which is a trend that can absolutely be linked to the Harry Potter series, but has continued even after Rowling stopped publishing new books in the series. So, Jackson, could I ask you to read this quote for me? Yes. Quote, half of the 9 to 11-year-olds surveyed by Scholastic said they read books to help you figure out who you are and who you could become. What began with Harry Potter, an undoubtedly captivating and even inspiring work, is now commonplace. The Twilight Saga, a four-book series by Stephanie Meyer, has sold over 28.5 million copies in the U.S. in the five years since the first book, Twilight, was released in 2005. The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, released in 2008, is the first book in Collins' Hunger Game trilogy and has already sold over 540,000 copies in the U.S., There are many new young adult series, and kids line up at midnight to get their hands on the first available copies. This is a sign of avid, even voracious readership, not, as the NEA reported in 2004, a diminished role of voluntary reading in American life. End quote. Beautifully read. Yeah, so a huge and ongoing, like, sustainable growth in YA publishing. Incredible. But seriously, though, if we want young people reading and YA gets more young people reading, then why all the moral panic? Surely it can't just be the midnight releases. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just the midnight releases and children being up past their bedtimes. I saved us all the extensive Jonathan Franzen quotes, but in the early 2000s, there were so many, like, concern trolley op-eds from white men being like, wow, I guess that's the death of moral complexity. Nobody wants to read a serious book anymore. Like, so much sense that, like, particularly adults reading YA was really dangerous. And, of course, related concerns about, like, if this is what the children are reading, then, like, what are they learning from these books? So I want to link those moral panics and the rise of YA and the particular popularity of Twilight all to a particular cultural phenomenon of the early 2000s, and maybe not uniquely of the early 2000s, but certainly at a peak in the early 2000s, which is Western culture's raging disdain for teenage girls. Mm. Uh So do you guys remember anything in particular about, like, public treatment of girlhood in the early 2000s? Like, what kind of narratives we were attaching to girlhood around that time? I mean, it wasn't great. I also think that it's it's stuff that I feel like I have observed more in retrospect and comparing to like, not that things are like perfect and great now, but even just like some of my friends who are like 10 years or so younger than me, a lot of them having much better like relationships to their body image and, and stuff in ways that I'm just like, whoa, it was very toxic when we were living in the early 2000s. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, a real definitely. Kate Winslet and Titanic is fat era. Yeah. Do you remember that? No. There was so much tabloid coverage calling Kate Winslet fat in Titanic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the body policing for girls at the time was, like, makes our contemporary moment feel like a fucking body positive paradise in comparison. It was horrific. So but part of why I, you know, can pretend that I remember this uh, rather than having um, put it in my trauma oubliette, like everything else in my past, um, is that I have been reading this great series by Constance Grady 
She's a culture writer for Vox. I love her work. I quote her work a lot. I teach her work a lot. Anyway, she has a whole series over on Vox about what she calls the bubblegum misogyny of 2000s pop culture, which really beautifully summarizes some of the cultural forces that were acting upon girlhood at the time. So, Marcel, could you read this quote? Quote, When today's 30-somethings were teenagers, the culture was awash in confusion about sex, purity, and femininity. We were post-feminist. Women had already achieved equality and had become butt-kickers with girl power, and there was nothing left to complain about. We were in the midst of raunch culture, and it was important to be tanned and sexy and taut and down for anything. We were entering the Bush-era purity ring years when virginity would be held up as a prize to be fetishized and evaluated. Only one thing was clear. There was no right way to be a girl. There were only different ways to fail. And we learned that from pop culture. End quote. A lot came back to me while I was reading that. <laughs> yeah, <quote>. same. <laughs> Did it kind of bring, like, it opened up the oubliette, huh? Oh. And that, like, well, you better be, like, super fucking hot, super, like, down to exploit yourself and other women at all times. But also, if you have sex, you're going to get slut-shamed really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, just this this landscape of, like, you're just walking this this high wire of gender performance and you can't do it right. Like you got to look hot and desirable so that people want to have sex with you. But then if they try to have sex with you, you you can't. Again, this is my sexual assault center training. But then if you end up getting sexually assaulted, it's your fault for looking hot and like you wanted to have sex, which was what you were supposed to do. It's like the whole, it's what a fucking mess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Man, I hate that era. Yeah, I think I think part of the reason why we're particularly talking about girlhood in the early 2000s right now is the impact that the Britney Spears documentary had. It came out, I think, a couple of years ago. And of course, we've got her memoir, which just came out. But all of it is like really reframing collectively, like the way that we treated girls in the early 2000s like the way that tabloid media treated girls, but also the way that like the rest of us as consumers of that media consented. And Britney Spears was obviously like particularly in the limelight and so was particularly bearing the brunt of that culture. But we were all living in the thick of it. Yeah. Where we're at right now, re-Britney Spears, sort of reminds me of where we were at maybe like, I can't actually remember how many years ago, but with like Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. Like, remember how we had that moment where we were like, oh, hey, yeah, the way that Monica Lewinsky was treated was real fucked up. Too bad we didn't know that at the time. And now I think the same sort of thing is happening. Yeah, for sure. So, into this landscape of crushing disdain for girls comes a book series Ooh. that treats with profound seriousness the internal emotional landscape of a single teenage girl who's navigating, like, identity and belonging and family and romance and sexuality, all of which is framed through the familiar tropes of fantasy romance, which Meyer was undoubtedly saturated in. This book is, like, trope city. <laughs> and tons of intertextual references to the very classics that its target demographic was likely reading in school, like Romeo and Juliet and Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hannah, I hate to interrupt, but uh, um, I worry that you're getting ahead of yourself. And I really want to slow us down and gently ask you to please talk to me about some theory. Marcel, thank you for yeah. asking me so sweetly. <laughs> um, because you were so kind. Yeah. We can we can have some we can have a little theory as a treat as a treat. <laughs> so, what is the theory we need to talk about Twilight? Hannah, you know that I hate to be this guy, but some of it we've already kind of talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked about Lauren Berlant's concept of intimate publics and women's culture. Absolutely. Very relevant to Twilight. And Mm -hmm. probably also 
encoding and decoding and the role of audience autonomy in making use of popular culture in ways that might challenge or expand beyond the messages encoded in the text. Yeah, uh-huh. Jackson, uh-huh. great point. That too. Actually, <laughs> I suspect the more we talk about popular culture and the material conditions for its popularity, the more we're going to need to like really keep circling around this question of how communities take up works that might be culturally disdained or politically retrograde or for lack of a better word, aesthetically bad, uh, and what they might be doing with those works that isn't just like straightforwardly absorbing the messages. And because Twilight might seem like a deeply disempowering book at a textual level, I think we really need to think about the way teen girls embraced it and the fan practices that emerged around it, which are anything but disempowering. All right, so we're going to talk about fandom. No, No. absolutely not. We're (laughs) going to talk about girlhood. All right. Girlhood? Yeah, girlhood. That doesn't sound like a real field. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, and yet, uh, my starting point here is an essay by Catherine Driscoll called Girl Culture and the Twilight Franchise, which I, I recommend. It's really interesting. But reading that article, I then was like, who is this Driscoll person? She seems very smart. So I did a little more digging into her. Catherine Driscoll is a professor of gender and cultural studies at the University of Sydney in Australia who helped to define the field of girl studies. So her understanding of girlhood as, you know, the person who kind of helped to create that field is really rooted in the work of cultural theorists like Michel Foucault and Louis Althusser. And it's really deeply interested in the tension between how girlhood is a function of power and ideology, and then how girls position themselves as actors within a really fraught ideological landscape. So she is thinking of girlhood as ideological and political, not biological. Precisely. So she sees girlhood as essentially a cultural construct rooted in the intersection of youth and femininity, as well as race and class. So she's interested in, like, how is girlhood associated with white femininity in particular and the sort of lack of access to culturally sanctioned forms of girlhood for women of color, which we have touched on in our um, more extended conversations about Taylor Swift as well, right? That Taylor Swift gets to be a girl and then that's linked to her whiteness. So Driscoll is asking questions like, how has girlhood been culturally defined in different historical contexts? And how has the creation of an identity called girlhood been linked to the increasing buying power of adolescent women and the development of something she calls a girl market? Okay, so we as a culture like invented girlhood to sell things. Capitalism invented girlhood to sell things. (laughs) Like kind of, yeah. Um, so, so girlhood as a category is quite hard to divide from the markets that have shaped it and from the way we've culturally relied on girls for their enthusiastic fandom and mm. then greeted that fandom with consistent crushing disdain. We're going to briefly go back to Constance Grady again. Jackson, could you read this quote where she, uh, she beautifully summarizes the role of girls in popular culture? Yes, absolutely. Quote, To be a teenage girl is to simultaneously be pop culture's ultimate punching bag, cash cow, and gatekeeper. Teen girls helped popularize novels in the 18th century, and we called them hysterical, until novels became a respectable subject for dinner party conversation. They're language disruptors doing everything from ditching doth and maketh to inaugurating the modern use of the word like and speech patterns like uptalk and vocal fry, and they're called airheads incapable of speaking properly. They're the base of an entire media economy of TikTok stars and influencers, and people tell them that the things they care about are fundamentally meaningless and do not matter, even as those teen girls make millions of dollars, end quote. Okay, so the girl market is about selling girls things, and then mocking them for the things that we've sold them. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah, for sure. And then in turn, monetizing the culture that teen girls shape while continuing to insist that they're a meaningless and powerless cultural sector. Like, you know who loved the Beatles before every middle-aged white man you know said they're the most important group of all time? Teenage girls. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And, and, And there was a big moral panic 
about like, uh-oh, teenage girls are too excited about the Beatles. Oh, man. And then now, men started liking them, and that was fine. I just really, like, want to see in 10 years a bunch of, like, 40-year-old white men talking so, like, intellectually about BTS. I, I can't they're wait to see gonna, that. They're gonna, Jack! Yeah. They're gonna. <laughs> you fucking it's know they're so gonna. It's so infuriating. <laughs> okay, okay. But so how does Twilight fit into all of this? Like, is it another example of a thing that teen girls made popular and then were disparaged for liking? I think it kind of was. But <laughs> what do we do with all of the Twilight fans who aren't girls like oh, me? Great question. Like you. <laughs> and lots of other people, right, who are all genders and also a lot of adults who love this series. So these are really great questions. And I think it's really vital here to distinguish between girl culture and culture that is only consumed by girls. Because the reality is that a lot of girl culture, like what Driscoll is talking about as girl culture, is much more widely beloved. But that those of us, like male Twilight fans and adult YA readers who are not girls but engage with girl culture, get really wrapped up in that disdained class. So like, if you like the thing that teenage girls like, you just get the girl disdain. So... <laughs> As we have been discussing, the only way for girl culture to really gain cultural capital is for straight white cis men to endorse it. Like, for example, Ryan Adams' cover album of 1989, which got a Pitchfork review when literally no Taylor Swift album had ever received a Pitchfork review. That's I'm wild. sorry, wait, what? Yeah, they've gone, Pitchfork has gone back. They've like totally like admitted that that was misogyny. And they have gone back and in retrospect reviewed all of her albums. But at the time that they gave a Pitchfork review to Ryan Adams' cover of 1989, they had never reviewed a Swift album. That is fucking wild. Yeah, mm. it, that is really astonishing. Like, and like yeah. in a way it's not, but, but it is. It truly is. Yeah, it's one of those things that you go like, holy shit. And then you're like... Yeah, checks out, actually. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of actually fits with the, with everything I know about the way our world works, but... Yeah, yeah. Still mad, wow. <laughs> Woo! So in the case of Twilight, teen girls reading the series contributed to the rising trend of YA publishing, which is good for the publishing industry and good for reading rates and good for literacy rates and all of these things that we care about. Teenagers have the most disposable income, don't they? Yeah. Isn't that like demographically the case? Like, like if you want to sell stuff, you got to sell it to teens yeah. because they can just spend their money with abandon. And so if the YA market is like, you see what I'm saying here? Yeah. So as I was saying, it's good for the publishing industry. It's good for mm -hmm. reading rates. Like teenagers have disposable income. They are buying books. And yet at the same time, quote unquote, twihards as the fandom is sometimes referred to, have been openly disparaged and Stephanie Meyer mocked for her bad writing, about which we can talk more in the next segment if we feel drawn to do so. But I want us to get back to Catherine Driscoll and her arguments about Twilight and girl culture. So now that we've nuanced the concept of girl culture a bit, Jackson, could you please read this quote from Driscoll? Yes. Quote, Twilight is girl culture. Popular culture for girls, about girls, and circulated by girls. Girl culture in this sense clearly takes many forms and is shaped by many cultural contexts, but it appears wherever the modern ideas of gender and adolescence intersect with mass-produced popular culture that enables girls' sharing of ideas about girlhood. In this sense, girl culture emerges in the 19th century in multiple locations and has continued to both appear in new places and spread across distances and borders, developing some impermanent but particular generic allegiances and conventions along the way. It is as girl culture that Twilight seems to me particularly significant. End quote. Ah, oh, thank you. Beautiful. Yeah, so... She talks in the article about some of those conventions. What are the trappings of girl culture, which includes, you know, conversations about fitting into or failing to fit into different subcultures in your high school. Prom tends to feature very strongly narratively in girl culture. The whole premise that all of this story has to happen at high school 
even though it makes no sense for these vampires to be going to high school, has a lot more to do with it fitting into the conventions of girl culture than any sort of narrative logic. So what do you think, Jackson? As a resident Twilight fan, does this interpretation of the franchise make sense to you? Yes, in so many ways. I also think there's some nuance that I would probably add to it. Well, luckily for you, we're headed into the nuance segment. Great. Oh, goody. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you so much for giving me that theory to whet my appetite, but I think I'm really ready to sink my teeth into a thesis, something juicy Okay, I'm going to keep this one pretty straightforward, I think, because I am so excited to, like, really get into this series with Jackson. So, Stephanie Meyer's Twilight was published in 2005, a historical moment marked by the simultaneous ascendance and profound cultural denigration of what Catherine Driscoll calls girl culture, culture often produced by and for or at least popularized by teenage girls. In the early 2000s, when teen girls could see humiliating stories about Britney Spears splashed across the front of every tabloid while simultaneously being told that feminism was done and women had achieved equality, Twilight emerged to capture the spirit of the moment, one in which girls were presented with a seeming abundance of choices while simultaneously being told that whatever choice they made was not only wrong, but was ultimately responsible for their own oppression. In this essay, I will... All right. Okay. I can't take it anymore. I got to talk more about my hate love with vampires. (laughs) I mean... Which I think really fits, though, with the abundance of choices while being told that whatever choice you make is not only wrong, but responsible for your own oppression. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So I love the Twilight movies. I love them. Whoa. I think that they are perfect camp. Wow. I think I did they're not know so this. funny. I think they're so funny. Like, I will rewatch them anytime. We watched them all together in the early days of the pandemic. We did, like, a virtual viewing party thing, me and Marcel and, and some of our mutual friends. And the way that everybody else came out of that experience, like, well, those were the worst movies that I've ever seen. And I was like, no, I've been changed. <laughs> I love these. I love these just fully and unironically. But this is the first time I had read any of the books. And what really struck me was like the intense interiority, like you are super inside Bella's head and like inside the sort of um, like micro interactions she's having on a day-to-day basis and like the banality of what her day-to-day looks like, particularly as like an overly parentified, underparented teenager who does not have a stable adult in her life at all and is like fucking cooking dinner for her dad because she cooked dinner for her mom because that's how she grew up. So it's much more interested in a very banal lived experience of being a teenage girl. And also it's like really concerned with questions of her autonomy and her right to choose her choice. Because from really early on, she's like, well, you're a vampire, I want to be a vampire. And Edward's like, no. And she's like, fuck you, I get to choose. (laughs) I feel like I am having a revelation in this moment about why the Twilight books resonated with me. Good, good, because I actually think you can read them as a trans narrative. Oh, no, that didn't, mm, okay, wait. I do. I really do. Okay. But tell me, tell me about your revelation. Oh, okay. So there's, first I have to say, if you think that there's a lot of interiority in Twilight, you got to read Midnight Sun, which is Twilight rewritten from Edward Cullen's perspective. This is a Stephanie Meyer book. It's one of the real books. And in that book, 
anything that's like a two paragraph action in the Twilight book is like 20 pages of existential rambling from Edward Cullen's perspective. I actually do call that book like the um, boy's happy meal of the Twilight books. It's like Twilight for boys. <laughs> um, okay, so we can talk about the trans thing in a second, but I, I want to just talk about what you were saying of sort of the the banality of life and the lack of choice because I was just realizing like I first read the Twilight books the summer in between the end of high school and the start of college for me, I think was when I read them. And like my life at that time was just like going to my like Barnes and Noble job and and hanging out with friends. And I, I didn't have a ton going on. And it was also this like onset of adulthood and and the fears around that. And so this this is all making a lot of sense of like why it resonated with me so much of, you know, I've heard people talk about the Twilight books, the becoming a vampire thing can kind of be a metaphor for Bella of just like becoming an adult. And to to your point of how she is um, someone who grew up without a lot of choices and having to be the parent, this is now she is having a, a very big choice that she is seizing. But at the same time, it's a choice that comes with like taking away a lot of other freedoms. It's a very, very tough choice. So it's like choice, but not necessarily in a good way, which, wow, doesn't that sound like adulthood? <laughs> You'd be <laughs> amazed at the lack of choices you get to make as a parent. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They'll suck. Oh, we Marcel. can either be late for school, or we can take a cab, or we can do both. Oh, <laughs> carry on. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think it's it's a coming of age narrative, which is classic for YA, but it's a coming of age narrative, sort of intensified into this. She is a girl, and she is making the decision to become something else. And the something else is this kind of, like, vampirism is death, and it's associated with, like, the end of change and the end of a lot of the latent promises of girlhood, right? Like, both growth and development and the possibility of of parenthood, like, that's really driven home even in this first book, that, like, the lady vampires are sad because they can't have babies, and that's like a foreclosure of the promise of girlhood is to become a mother. And so vampirism is figured as this like simultaneously unbelievably alluring possibility, but also as a terrible foreclosure of the total openness of girlhood. And in that way, I think it does really figure effectively as a metaphor for adulthood, for like what happens to you as a girl when you cease to be a girl. It's like, like Britney Spears said, not a girl, not yet a woman. I mean, it's, which is exactly the space that Bella is in, which is exactly this, this really sort of liminal in-between space of moving out of girlhood into something else. And just what strikes me so much when I'm thinking about this book and the way that it's circulated is like how many readers resonated profoundly with this character and with her choice making, right? Like so much of the fandom was organized around like Team Edward versus Team Jacob and like all of this stuff. And how much of the cultural disdain also circulated around the girls who are reading these books making the wrong choices, right? Like you can choose what to read, but you read this, so you're bad. And also Bella making the wrong choice, right? Like there's a lot of sort of moral panic around her interest in this relationship with this vampire and like the bad messages that that's sending. Okay, I want to interject here because Hannah, you had said that you think that you can read this book as a metaphor for a trans experience. And so I really want to hear more about that because I'm thinking about like as everything you're describing right now sounds so much like the moral panic around, quote unquote, protecting children from like drag queens, protecting children from the gays, protecting children from curricula that uh, that is inappropriate for them because it teaches them that gender is uh, is fluid or that gender is a spectrum instead of biological. So can you make those connections for me? Because I'm excited about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the fetishization of girlhood ties into that moral panic in a lot of ways. And it has to do with 
the way that we situate, I mean, as we were discussing, as simultaneously hypersexualized and profoundly desexualized, and the sense that we must protect our children from sexuality unless that sexuality is hegemonic sexuality, in which case it's good. You know, we see that playing out in all kinds of ways in this first book, you know, the way that like everybody is obsessed with Bella going to the dance with a boy. And Bella's like, I'm not interested in boys. I'm interested in beautiful 100-year-olds made out of stone. <laughs> like sparkly stone. I guess you could call that relationship heterosexual if you must. But like, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's what the appeal of <laughs> Edward Cullen is. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I would say he's very clearly feminized in Mm -hmm. the book in terms of what his appeal is for her. So I already feel like there's lots of shimmering queerness throughout. Mm -hmm. I also think about the way that anti-trans moral panics are connected to a sense of ownership of the bodies and identities of children and young people, particularly on the part of parents, but also on the part of like culture as a whole. The sense that, like, children are not whole people. Teenagers are not whole people. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand what they want. They don't understand who they are. And so they must not be allowed to articulate anything about themselves. That is not what we are telling them they're allowed to be. And and how that ties into this sort of, you know, obsession over curtailing and restricting the choices that girls have and panicking when it seems girls are making choices that are not the ones culturally we want them to make. And I think the sort of agency with which so many teenage girls have taken up this series and embraced it, particularly via the framework of transformative fandom, so fan fiction, fan art, cosplay, all of the stuff that we do when we take up fandoms, is not unrelated to the sense that culturally it is our job and our right to restrict and curtail the identities of young people. But also just the whole premise of like her insisting on her right to undertake a transformation Mm -hmm. that is going to turn her into a person who is not what either of her parents wanted her to be, that in fact, from her parents' perspective, will be read as death which again resonates with a lot of the ways that narratives of transition currently circulate culturally. Jack, is it okay for me to ask you if you want to talk about, like, I read your enthusiastic email, but I also don't want to put you on the spot. So, <laughs> no, like, yeah, I've, I've just been trying to formulate um, my thoughts. Um, yeah. Yeah, Hannah, I mean, one thing that stands out to me with what you're saying in connecting this to girlhood particularly is that kind of like the flavor of anti-trans panic that happens towards specifically like younger trans men, trans boys, trans masculine people is the, you are a confused girl. You are, you have been like led astray somehow. Like it is very much the, the seeing girls as incapable of being able to make decisions about their own bodies and about their own lives. And so, yeah, that is something that really, really resonates with me in what you were saying. But it's also so funny listening to you say this. And I'm like, I think I've maybe circled around this idea in liking Twilight before, but like, I don't think it's ever been a conscious resonation for me, um, which is really amusing to me that I feel like you're just sort of telling me why I have always liked this franchise, but I wasn't exactly conscious of it. Um, well, but but I, I would really love to hear more about like, what brought you into loving yeah. this franchise? Like you've said, you know, part of it was this this coming of age moment for you. But can you talk more about like what you found in this fandom? Yeah. So, I, you know, I first read the books going into college and then my freshman year of college, I had a lot of bad experiences and I got into a deep depression. And I think some of it was like the gender dysphoria about to emerge, but it was also just a lot of life stuff and in particular a bad relationship. And 
one thing that I did as I was sort of recovering from that was I read and watched New Moon, the second Twilight book in which Bella gets broken up with and there's like literally just blank pages illustrating her depression. I read and watched those like on loop for months because somehow that was very comforting to me. Um, so like of all of the the Twilight series that people say are bad, New Moon is often the one that people are like, oh, it's the worst. And I'm like, oh, that was the one that was like the most healing for me. And I... Yeah, I was really into Twilight. I mean, to the extent that like I have been to Forks twice. Incredible. I do think (laughs) there's stuff that resonated with me about the text, I think. But to sort of talk a little bit about the fandom as well, like I do think part of why I really like the franchise is that I think I fetishize the part of the world that you live in, Hannah. (laughs) Um, the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific, Pacific Northwest is so beautiful. I love it so much. It uh, is so wet up here. It's so wet. It's so wet. It's so green. All right, uh, everybody. I absolutely love it. So, like, I had put away Twilight for years and years and years. Um, there was a little bit of a renaissance that seemed to happen at the start of the pandemic. around, And, and I didn't get into that. It wasn't until this past spring I had a trip out to uh, Vancouver and Washington and Oregon. And I was just driving around for hours by myself. And I was like, you know what music absolutely slaps? The Twilight soundtracks. And I, <laughs> so I knew leading up to this trip, I was going to be driving around all these national parks, listening to the Twilight soundtracks. And they were just as good as I remembered. Because for people who don't know, these soundtracks, legitimately good. I don't know how this happened but like all of the soundtracks were able to get some of the coolest like up and coming or established artists of that era of like the early aughts and early 2010s and put them on the Twilight soundtrack like they're so good there must have been just like a really talented like music supervisor yeah exactly so they're very good but I was you know driving around through Washington listening to this music and then I'm alone in hotel rooms and one night I was like I'm just gonna rent the Twilight movie I'm just gonna watch it again And it was real good. So then the next night I rented the next one and then I was getting the books on Libby, renting them from the library. And so then I was reading them all again. And by the time I came home from this trip, I was so desperate to like watch the DVD features and listen to the commentaries that I ended up buying a special edition box set of the DVDs (laughs) that I have now. Um, Y'all, if you haven't listened to Robert Pattinson's commentary on the first Twilight movie, it's a really important cultural artifact because he <laughs> is, like, so hard on himself. Like, him, he's making fun of himself so hard. The commentary is so good because it's him and Kristen Stewart critiquing themselves and kind of making fun of the movie. And then the director, Catherine Hardwick, trying so hard to stay on brand. <laughs> like, bless her heart. But no, so it is really funny. But that that is another thing to bring into this as well for me, which is that I loved Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. I thought they were both so cool. And even in the intervening years where I did not like Twilight anymore and people still hated Kristen Stewart and said she was a bad actress, I was constantly defending her. And so I feel very validated now that she's like queer and cool to people like I always knew. Um, But there was a thing for that with me of like the two of them, I think as a like not yet out queer trans guy, I looked at both of them as like, I would like to be and bang both of them, not sure which, very confused, but very alluring, both of them. But in all of that, like, even when we were just bringing up the like, oh, listen to the commentary because Robert Pattinson just makes fun of it the whole time. Like, in liking Twilight, especially in during the time when it was big, it was like, you had to make fun of it. If you were to even admit that you liked it, you still had to make fun of it because it was a thing that was very shameful and embarrassing to like because of what society said about it. And I think the treatment of Kristen Stewart is totally wrapped up in that. But we're just talking about the book here. Yeah, because that's the like tax you pay for liking a thing that's shameful. Exactly. Is like you can like it, but you have to be like, (laughs) I'm reading these ironically. Yeah, it was it was like you were embarrassed to admit that you actually liked them because of everything that we've talked about, the way that like society had disdain for anything that was girl culture. And I think this is really wrapped up in the way that everyone treated Kristen Stewart as well for years. But that's, totally. you know, mm-hmm. that's about the movies, yeah. not about the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But what perfect casting. My God. I need to ask you two a really important question, because having not read the books, and having watched the movies and not been in the right frame of mind to appreciate them, full stop, let alone appreciate them as camp, I feel like there's a lot in this discussion that I can't 
participate in and I am feeling left out. So I just really need to ask, are you team Edward or team Jacob? Because this is the only thing I have strong opinions about. Yeah. I am always so tempted to be like, I'm team Bella, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> but you are, aren't you? You are team Bella. No, th- you don't want I'm, her to be a vampire. Well, that's you true. Have a- but I'm reevaluating a lot of these uh, opinions now. What I will also say is like, I got very annoyed that every other YA franchise then had to ma- make the team things, particularly oh, for the Hunger right. Games, when it was like, no, are that is team, team Katniss. Team like, that is about Katniss. Explain to me why in the fucking dystopian future where children are murdering each other, they can't have like a throuple. Right? Great point. I think that's an excellent point. Like everybody calm down. <laughs> you're getting, you're about to get murdered with like a pitchfork. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. fuck two guys. I don't. One of them's going to hunt and the other one's going to bake bread for you. Like this, 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 it's this ideal. is an yeah. ideal scenario. But seriously though, Team Edward or Team Jacob, I need to know. Hannah, do you have an affiliation? I mean, I've, I've only read the first book. So, okay, but you've seen um, all the movies. Yeah. But I've seen all the movies. I am like solidly Team Edward for sure. Okay. Because it's what Bella wants. Yeah. She never really wants anything else. Like Jacob is really into her and she likes having like a friend. And it sucks that the possibility of friendship is continuously foreclosed for her because... So many of the men around her can only perceive her as a sexual object. Mm -hmm. But that's their problem, not hers. She is, like, unbelievably stubborn when it comes to the thing she has decided she wants. And everybody around her, including Edward, is like, no, you are not allowed to want this. And she's, like, repeatedly almost dies. And she's like, no, I want this. And, like, that for me is, like, the crux of where people are, like, this is disempowering because she's given up everything else about her life for this romantic attachment. And where Catherine Driscoll's article convinced me that in the context of girl culture, the right to make a choice is the thing that actually matters. (laughs) But I think if you're Team Bella, you're Team Edward because... Edward is who Bella wants. Yeah. Interesting. And there, there is a point in the later books where Bella does, like, tell Edward, like, I don't just want to be a vampire to be with you. Like, I've never felt that I fit in as a human. I'm, like, so clumsy. As she, that always comes back to her clumsiness. That's how you can be hashtag quirky and relatable, I guess. Um, but, like, she, she does say she really feels like more of a vampire than a human. Uh, and so... I think that was a good thing within the context of like the discussions about the book at the time for Stephanie Meyer put in there and is really strong for our trans narrative argument. However, I think, Hannah, what you were just saying at the end of the day, it doesn't matter why she is making that choice. It's about her right to make the choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a it's what Stephanie Meyer says when people are like, this isn't a very feminist book. And Stephanie Meyer's like, well, feminism's about choice. That always makes me cringe a little because I think choice feminism is a pretty like white liberal like neoliberal fantasy of like individual autonomy and like oh it's actually not about like creating structural transformation to like the ways in which people's choices are like curtailed on all sides it's about like me and what I want and like that way lies you know deregulation and privatization (laughs) so what I'm saying is that maybe I'm not on board with Stephanie Meyer's personal understanding of feminism. (laughs) What? But we all know how I feel about authorial intent, so fuck it. I definitely find reading a story about a woman who has decided she wants something and fuck everybody who disagrees, like, kind of fun. Yeah. Okay, so, Jack, you have been into the book series for a long time, since before you were an adult, and now as an adult... And so I'm really curious if and how your thoughts about the series have like shifted and changed and developed over time, or if you have like new insights that maybe teenage Jack may have been missing. Yes. And I think some of that has evolved within this conversation, <laughs> um, or at least in reflecting ahead of this this 
podcast. Because um, one thing I'm is thinking that- about is we we talked about my hatred of vampires. <laughs> and that, yeah. that perhaps I like this book because Edward hates being a vampire. Even though upon rereading, it's so obviously clear that Bella is going to turn into a vampire and that's what she wants. Like narrative foreshadowing everything, she's going to be a vampire. I kind of missed that when I read them as a teenager because I was just so like, I don't want her to be a vampire. And I think part of it for me, it was all the stuff that she was giving up. That was a big part of it like of her human life. And it was also the idea of immortality. I think I was really scared of and resistant to mm-hmm. in any narratives. And nowadays, both on my reread of Twilight and just generally with the concept of immortality, I'm like, yes, please give give me infinite life. I like, I want to, you know, see a hundred years from now as we're probably living on another planet because we've destroyed this one, whatever. And I'm thinking about how, for me, that is probably very wrapped up in the fact that when I first read the books, I hadn't figured out my gender yet. I was deeply depressed. I could not imagine a future for myself as a woman, which for me is a very like binary gender transition thing that happened. But plays into a lot of what we were talking about of this being also a metaphor for entering adulthood and that not a girl, not yet a woman state of things. So I think it resonated to me on the surface when I first read it in that way, but in the way that I couldn't see until now was resonating in a much deeper gender way. Whereas now I'm like very comfortable as the man that I am and happy in my life as an adult. And I'm like, I mean, you know, maybe I wish I had gotten turned when like my knees weren't hurting as bad in my mid thirties, but like, Hey, I'll take immortality. <laughs> that sounds great to me. If I get to be a man vampire, then I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think once you're a vampire, you go back to peak. Oh, that's right. Physical form. That's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Then I'll I'll take yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Your knees will be just fine. Yeah, man, man, that resonates with me so much when I think about my teenage self, who was, you know, closeted and miserable and absolutely incapable of imagining a future for myself (laughs) like people would talk about like you know what do you want to be when you grow up or what do you want to do or what do you imagine your adult life looking like and I just pictured nothing there's all kinds of reasons for that but I really share that feeling of like having grown into an adulthood that is not something I was able to imagine for myself because it wasn't part of any of the narratives that were available to me and now feeling like so much more into the future uh-huh. than I used to be because I can picture a future in which I actually get to be the person I am. Like as an adult reading this book for the first time, I'm like, I totally fucking get, I mean, both why adults are into it, but also why teenagers would read this and resonate with that feeling at once of being totally out of control and incapable of imagining a future for themselves as they are now. Uh In conclusion, Twilight, pretty gay, turns out. (laughs) Yeah, when you were saying that that was not a hetero relationship, I was just like, I love how continually I find out that characters and actors and whoever that I was really obsessed with when I was closeted are also queer or can easily be read as queer. Like, of course. Yeah. Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. Once you're done looking up vampires on your favorite search engine, you can head over to ohwitchplease.ca to check out the rest of our episodes, as well as transcripts, reading lists, and merch. We have an excellent newsletter at substack.com slash ohwitchplease and an even better Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. Also, we're on Instagram, X, and Threads at Oh Witch Please, and on TikTok at Oh Witch Please Pod. Whew. Jackson, where can people go to find more of you and your work? Uh, well, I am Jack is not a bird on X and Instagram and and YouTube and TikTok, and I don't really post anywhere in this post Twitter landscape that we're in. I'm a little bit trying to figure that out, but theoretically you can follow me in those places. Uh, You can find my book Sorted in your local library or independent bookstore. And I am on Substack as my name or my newsletter is called First Draft Theater. And I will probably put out another one of those at some point. You know, we're in this weird world with social media. I'm trying to reevaluate my relationship to it. (laughs) 
I also do things in the meat world. If you're ever in New York City, uh, you can come see me doing experimental theater with the neo-futurists. Our show is called The Infinite Wrench, and it is our ongoing, ever-changing attempt to perform 30 original plays in under an hour. So you can go to nyneofuturists.org to learn more about that. I'm sorry, did you say the meat world, M-E-A-T? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the opposite of the internet. We're the meat world. Wow, do I ever hate the world we live in. <laughs> hey, so guess what, much. Marcel? We're mm. all made of meat. Ew! Thanks to Auto Syndicate for the use of our theme song, Shopping Mall. And of course, thanks to the whole Witch Please Productions team. Our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori. Our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. Our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. And our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tiers to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out to Jane B., Disha S., Chris W., Amy, Catherine K., Holly G., John Travolta, holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> Jessica B. and Eliza C. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then, later, vamp haters. Oh.